interest in ushers when you walk your miles to pass out Bibles for you to keep or for you to just use during the, ser- the service this morning. It's ushers. Well, I got this two times in a row. I got more emotional about that. No, it's so quiet. All right. So the sermon. Love God. Love others. In a nutshell, that's our gospel passage that the kids were singing up here. And that sums up the whole of the law in its own little nutshell. We heard the sermon, or sorry, the scripture sung by the children this morning, but I'd like to read it again and give it a fresh look by reading it from the message. So that's going to display that for us up here. From Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard how he, Jesus, had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces together for an assault. One of their religion scholars spoke for them, posing a question that they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which command in God's law is most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list, but there is a second alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hang from them. As the Pharisees were regrouping, Jesus caught them off balance with his own test question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, David's son. Jesus replied, well, if the Christ is David's son, how do you explain that David, under inspiration, named Christ his master? God said to my master, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now, if David calls him master, how can he at the same time be his son? That stumped them, literalists that they were, unwilling to risk losing face again in one of those public verbal exchanges. They quit asking questions for good. The word of the Lord. So we come to this scripture. After a series of tests, like it, intended to trap Jesus, the Jewish leaders, now those would be the priests, but they would also be the sages and the teachers who were following in the priestly lines. The two of those show up in our story. The Pharisees is one of those groups, claiming the authority of Moses' priestly line. And the Sadducees, who were directly in the line of Zadok, who was the high priest during the time of King Solomon. So all of these priests and priestly leaders are really skeptical of Jesus, and they're certainly threatened by him. So we're going to take a look at a few specific examples in chapters 21 and 22 of these kinds of exchanges. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, the chief priests see Jesus teaching in the temple, and they seize this moment for some good old, you know, for public shaming. Why not? With lots of people around. They are the established authorities, and they know that there are varying levels of rabbinic authority, and that Jesus is acting as one with the very highest level, which is to take the words, to speak words from God about the scripture and deliver it to people. So as he's doing that, they ask Jesus in front of the temple crowds, with what authority are you teaching, and who gave you this authority? It calls to mind for me this moment when I was substitute teaching, and I was directed to the teacher's lounge to go in and eat my lunch in peace. And then a group of 
answering their question about the greatest commandment with a section from Deuteronomy. And it's a section that the Jews call the Shema. And it's their central prayer, and it's recited twice daily, and Jewish communities do this still to this day all over the world. And it starts with these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, in quoting from the Shema, Jesus establishes the centrality of worship, that we should love God with all we have. And at the same time, he's expertly giving the Pharisees something that they cannot argue with. They will not argue with the Shema. But then Jesus radicalizes his answer a bit by pairing this love for God with loving the neighbor as oneself. That second part, loving the neighbor as oneself, he pulls from Leviticus. And he lifts that command out of a long list of shall and shall nots. And in marrying these two commands about love, he declares the law, all of it, fulfilled. Martin Luther writes about it this way. Now here Christ shows the Pharisees a twofold kindness. In the first place, he dispels their blindness and he teaches them what the law really is. And then in the second place, he teaches them how impossible it is for them to keep the whole law. Their blindness he dispels, and that he teaches them what the law is, namely, that the law is love. And as Jesus declares this greatest commandment, loving God and loving the neighbors oneself, Jesus speaks perhaps the most prophetic word of his whole ministry. My former boss, I think she's like, there's Mary. Mary gave me this beautiful Bible. It's the Wesley Study Bible. And it's filled with great commentary of the Wesleyan variety all along the bottom of the Bible. And it's written by, that commentary is written by a whole ton of Nazarenes. I mean, seriously, like the whole religion department of PLU contributed to this Bible. Um, and it's, it's awesome commentary. And I was using it this week when I was in Kathy and Christina Miller's workshop. And we were talking about women's voices and how they share the narrative of the gospel throughout the Old and the New Testaments. And this week in particular, I've got this Bible open, and we're reading about Mary and Elizabeth's conversations and interactions around their miraculous pregnancies. And we were struck, as we talked about it, by the silencing of Zechariah. So just a quick recap of that story. The angel comes to visit Zechariah and to tell him that Elizabeth will give birth to a son, and that the son will be named John, and John will speak for God, and John will be filled with the Holy Spirit since in the womb. And Zechariah is pretty doubtful. So he says back to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am getting along in years, and so is my life. And with that, this priest, Zechariah, is kept mute until the birth of John. And the corresponding note at the bottom of the Lovely Wesley Bible says this statement. Whereas John is being prepared to speak for God, Zechariah is rendered mute for his unbelief. The Gospels here introduce a recurring 
She predicts that Jesus will usher in this sort of upside-down kingdom, where the proud and the powerful will be brought down, and the lowly will be lifted up. And the hungry will finally be filled, and the rich will go away empty-handed. The notion of this priestly versus prophetic voice immediately connected for me as soon as I read it. It connected to me with the string of testing, tempting interactions that Jesus had with the priests and the teachers and the lawyers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those stories that we just talked about a minute ago. Jesus makes all these guys nervous. And in their anxiety, they are clinging to the safety of the law. And they are leaning hard into their priestly authority. And yet, you see, in just the four encounters I shared, every time, after their encounters with Jesus, their voice is softened. It's quieted. The best that they can come up with to say is, we don't know. They stop asking questions. They leave. Jesus' prophetic word, which declares love, love for God, love for self, love for neighbor, as the new order of things, it transforms everything. The philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, he describes the law as like a shadow of love. The shadow, just like our shadow, it hints at the shape and the fullness of love, but it can never really capture the spirit or the soul of love. And Paul, in Timothy, Paul uses a more mathematical metaphor to talk about the law and love. He writes, the sum of the commandments, the sum of them, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from true faith. In the same way, the any amount of numbers you put on a page are exactly the same as their sum, so does all of the law lead to love. That's the total. And in the end, when you're doing a bunch of addition, that's what really matters, right? It's the total. It's the aim of all the work. I first read this book, The Jesus Style, when I was a junior in college, and it changed my life. And you can probably tell if you look up close, because it's literally like it's falling apart. I have read this thing so many times, so it's kind of a mess, but I don't want to tape it because I don't want to, I don't want to preserve it the way it is. And the book changed my life because it simply focused on one main point, which was that the greatest commandment succinctly captures what the Bible is all about. And if that's true, that the greatest commandment is everything, then shouldn't it dominate our sermons, our church mission statements, our small group discussions, and our doctrines? I think most importantly, shouldn't it shape our daily lives? Like Kierkegaard's use of the shadow to describe the law, and Powell's mathematical sum metaphor, this book, when I was in college, led me to my own guiding metaphor that I've used ever since. My metaphor is, do I want to live by a yes-no quiz of rules? Yes, 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 got these. No, 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 didn't do those. Yes, no, yes, yes, yes. Would I live by that? Or could I live by one fill-in-the-blank line 
it's the priestly approach. When the prophetic voice is calling us to something richer and something fuller and something higher. So I ask all of us, how is God inviting you to love? Who is God inviting you to love? What will you write on that open-ended fill-in-the-blank line? I'd like to offer that, ask the ushers to come forward and offer us a prayer response. If you would pray with me. God, we thank you in immeasurable ways for your prophetic word that you declare the law fulfilled with the new law, the new covenant of love. And we do seek to love you with all that we have. And we do seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we acknowledge that this is tricky and it's not always clear what to do. But this is where we come to you in faith and in trust. Knowing that you are sufficient, you are love. That is the whole of who you are. And so we open ourselves up, God, to be conduits of that love to each other and to a great love.